I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Thank you for choosing to be here this Sunday at the International Buddhist Meditation Center. You could have just as easily chosen to be at the International House of Pancakes. So thanks for choosing us instead, although pancakes are delicious. So I have about almost two pages of, of talking notes here. Uh, we'll find out if I bit more than I can chew or if, uh, much like a college essay, I just have cheated through 12-point font, Times New Roman double-spaced. But in any case, my, my topic today is uh, reverence. And that's not a, a word that's often used in America and talking about Buddhism. Uh, I think in, in much the same way, when I've been looking at my, my past talks over the last few months, I've been uh, maybe pur purposefully using words that we don't often hear in Buddhism in America because uh, I think that using these words in, in new and interesting ways opens up another way of perceiving, perceiving the Dhamma. One word that I've been using a lot is intimacy in terms of developing understanding, in terms of developing wisdom, that when we're working on mindfulness, when we're working on attentiveness and attention in meditation in our daily lives, we're also talking about this uh, intimacy because, you know, in, in English we often use intimacy to talk about, you know, romantic involvement, romantic entanglement, but intimacy really means to, to know something very well, to have very close proximity to it. And so I think that's why it's helpful to use that word intimacy or intimate awareness when talking about mindfulness, when talking about meditation, when talking about how it is that we, we go about our day-to-day -day business. And I feel much the same way about the word reverence. Uh, but before I get into why I think that's a useful word, I, I think that one of the reasons why we don't hear words like reverence in Western American Buddhism is possibly because we have a tendency to emphasize the psychological aspects of Buddhism, especially meditation, and uh, for lack of a better term, the, the self-help aspects of, of Buddhism. And so it's easy to hold the misconception that all of our attention should be placed squarely in the mind and all the thoughts that take place there. And I think that on this path, our attention is on all of our reality, all aspects of it. Uh, the good, the bad, and the boring. You know, we, we start with uh, what are called the sense bases, uh, ayatana, right? So when we talk about these sense bases, we have the eyes and then all visible objects, the ears, all sounds, the tongue, all tastes, right? The body, all, you know, uh, touch sensations. And, you know, it's all the normal five senses, but in Buddhism, we also talk about the mind as one of these sense bases, one of these sense doors and mental objects as the things that the mind comes into contact with. And we not only start there, but 
we end with them as well because they are how we know and experience the world. And at first, we are caught up in these sense bases, right? We, we are so deeply invested in, in sights, smells, tastes, sounds, all of that, and the mental objects, all the things that, that we, we become attached to. And so in, in Buddhist philosophy, when we talk about these sense bases, they're, they're often talked about in reference to uh, dependent origination, you know, the, you know, 12 causal links. Basically, it's, it all comes down to through these sense bases, we come to these impressions, good impressions, bad impressions, neutral impressions. And through them, we form attachment and aversion. And through them, we become deluded. But they're also the very vehicles through which we grow in awareness. We grow in mindfulness. We grow in wisdom because these are the ways we know the world. And so this gets into Buddhist philosophical epistemology, which is, I could, that's very, we can really get into that. But the, the point that I think we should take away is that these sense bases are how we interact with the world because these internal aspects, the part that are just our bodies and the externals of the world have to come into contact for us to experience anything. And so there is this misconception that, that Buddhism is all about coming to the mind and only staying in the mind. And you can go off and live in a cave and not have to interact with the world and shut off all your senses and just, and then there you are. And as if that alone could, could lead to anything. And yet we see that not only in the, you know, in Tipitaka, but even just in the lives of the monks for, for thousands of generations, or, or rather hundreds of generations, uh, you see that there's always interaction with a community. There's always interaction with the world. You, in fact, the Buddha encouraged that. That's why there were not only monastics, but, but lay people. It wasn't as if you had to stop dealing with the world. It's not as if the world was, was demonized. And I think we have this, this perception of Buddhism in the West, partially because of how Buddhism came into uh, America, I want to say in the 1800s, and how it was purposefully vilified because a lot of Christians were intimidated by the religion. And, and so they played up aspects of like nihilism and uh, like aversion to, you know, to, to society and the world. And they, they played up this, this view that um, Buddhists are anni annihilationists, that we're seeking our own undoing, that we're seeking... Uh, some kind of uh, permanent death, when really what we're seeking is no more rebirth, right? Um, and I think that that's, that's carried through a little bit because there is still this view that when we learn about sangsada, that we learn about suffering, perhaps we, we grow too aversive of the world. And in, in reality, it's not that, that Buddhists or the Buddhist way is an, is an aversion to the world, but rather it's precisely our cravings and aversions that cause our distress, our dissatisfaction, our suffering in the first place. 
so this this line of thinking that we're only dealing with the contents of the mind, that we're only turning towards the internal, uh, I think comes from that notion that I, I brought up in my last talk about fixing the mind. And really, the that's not the goal of meditation and not the goal of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. We might say that the goal is transcending the limitations of the mind. And I say this because the mind is already very good at thinking about itself and being dissatisfied with what it finds. So the path is not about scrutinizing our minds, seeking these faults, and trying to correct them. Really, the path, as I've come to understand it, and what I think we're best suited to, is changing the relationship we have with the world. Existence. And that includes our minds, but also so much more. It includes everything that we come into contact with. Other people, our surroundings, this very moment. All of the things that are coming into contact with these sense bases. And before we learn about the Four Noble Truths, um, we can sometimes be very dismissive of much of our reality. You know, when, when I think on what, what life is like without the, the Dhamma, then it's really just existing as best you can, trying to find what pleasures you can, and it, it becomes, I don't want to say a kind of, of hedonism, but it certainly becomes a kind of... of Consciousless living. It's it's not it's not active living. It's not living consciously. We're we're just feeding these cravings, and uh, you know I, I think about say the experience of uh, of like going to the movies. I remember this one. Um, I think it was a Ellen DeGeneres joke. This bit that she had where she's talking about something about the movies, some, something about sitting in the dark theater, you know, under those conditions when you got the big screen up. That's the only place where you'll have this big giant bucket of popcorn and just kind of mindlessly grab it by the fistful and just oh, and, and just eat. And no one ever eats like that in, in, in you know in like a like a polite situation. If you're all at the table and people are just grabbing just big fistfuls, but something about being in the dark and something about having that big screen just showing you all these entertaining visions, you just mindlessly ah, and you never really think about that point when the big bucket of popcorn is empty, but you sometimes get there. Um, actually, matter of fact, I saw a movie yesterday, and uh, because of the way they they have their, their system worked out, it's usually more cost-effective, just go for the large bucket. And, uh, and I, was, I couldn't help but think about that joke while I'm sitting there with my wife and just taking little bits of popcorn and just imagining that like there's a bunch of people just munching away that when the quiet point hits in the movie, you can just hear in the whole theater. We're all just filling up our senses, completely distracted, just completely giving into cravings. And that's, that's a very benign example. I'm sure there are other ways in which we have these sense doors and we use them for entertainment rather than using them for knowledge, for wisdom, for compassion, things like that. And I think that even after we learn about the middle way and, this, and even after we start applying it 
to our lives, uh, I think that we sometimes fall into another form of dismissiveness, which is uh, a kind of misplaced renunciation. I think that in the West, we sometimes confuse Buddhist renunciation with the kind of renunciation we might find in, say, uh, Catholicism or other forms of, of Christianity, in which the world is seen as, as corrupt, as wrong, as sinful, and all of the pleasures to be found here, likewise sinful. When what I have found in Buddhism is that we're not looking at the world as sinful, what we're looking at is our a craving, our attachment to anything that we experience, anything that might become a craving. That is something that we, we usually call in English within Buddhism as unskillful, but not sinful. The world is not inherently sinful because there's no sin in Buddhism, but the world is inherently prone to interact with us in such a way that if we are not mindful, if we are not paying attention, if we are not living and acting skillfully, we will become attached and we will become aversive and we will become deluded. But it's not anyone's fault, right? The world itself is just the world. We need to look at our relationship to it. That's the place we start and the place we end. So when we talk about renunciation, we're not talking about completely doing away with the world or viewing it in a negative sense. What we renounce is the unhealthy, unskillful relationship we have with our reality. The ways in which we give into greed, the ways we give into hatred, the ways we give into delusion and don't seek wisdom, true wisdom. A lot of us seek knowledge. And I, th I think it was uh, maybe a couple talks ago, I, I was talking about how there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. There are very knowledgeable people out in the world. They have a lot of information, but they may not be very peaceful. They may not be very light-hearted. They haven't found the lightness of being that comes from wisdom. Wise people usually don't have a whole lot to complain about. They usually don't have a whole lot that is adversely affecting the mind because they live in a balanced way with all the various things that come into their lives. So I think that this term reverence is useful in building skillful relationships with our reality because reverence, although we usually use that term in the West in a kind of religious sense, reverence sounds a lot like worship. Reverence kind of brings up the idea of like, say, sacredness, which some of us might be um, reluctant to use. Some of us carry baggage, say, from previous religions. But reverence, when you really look up the definition, just means a deep respect for something. And when you really think about it, how much of us actually have a deep respect for all the moments of our lives? 
we can have respect for things that we consider to be important, like being right here in this temple. We might have a, a, a certain amount of respect for this moment. But say, like my little joke earlier, we were at IHOP, right? If we were the International House of Pancakes and we had a short stack in front of us, where's our reverence then? When we're standing in line at, at the DMV, or we're at dinner, and a bunch of people go leave to the restroom and you're there alone, no one to talk to, no real interaction. Where's your reverence then, your respect for that moment? How often do we just fall into a sort of zombie state, unconsciousness, and just reach for the phone, start scrolling through, not participating in what's happening right here, right now? How much of the time are we living in distraction or living to escape what's happening right here and right now? How much respect are we giving it? How much reverence are we giving these moments? And for me, I think that's, that's very important because even as a Buddhist, I don't feel that I'm always doing that. I catch myself. You know, I, I can't help but if I'm not reading a book or talking to someone or if there's not music in the background, just kind of itching for that phone and start scrolling through stuff. I can't sometimes abide the silence like I know might be more useful if I did. You know, I, I think that we live in a society of distraction, of, of constant stimulation. And when we don't have that and we're faced with just the reality of being in the moment, kind of panic maybe sets in, that we have to fill it up, these spaces. And I think it's useful to see that, recognize that, and give yourselves more opportunity for creating those spaces and living in them, respecting them, having reverence for them. One of the most useful places I've found for that, one of the most useful places I've found, really is going into nature. Because when you go into nature, and I think that there's a reason why in early monasticism, a lot of monks would go out into the forest to meditate, is because something happens when you're there. You can't help but see interconnectedness. You can't help but see the, the way life unfolds. And even with something like meditation, you can't help but see how you live in relationship to other things. Even in terms of the Buddha himself, I can't help but see those connections. The fact that the Buddha was born under a tree, found liberation under a tree, and also passed away under a tree, outdoors. And when you sit in meditation, and one of the places he suggested for meditation is at the base of a tree, you find relationship there too. Because if you're like me and meditate on the breath, then you start to realize that I'm not even alone in breathing. Quite literally, even scientifically, the tree that I'm sitting under is breathing with me. The exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide is happening right there. That tree is breathing, I'm breathing, and we're doing it together. Even in a room of people, we might not be helping each other with uh, the oxygen. I think we're all kind of competing for it. But 
even when we sit together. It's, it's not just that we are a community. We are. But it's also that we are connected. That we have a relationship to each other. And when we see that, when we see that really what we're talking about is the relationships we have, we can see why reverence might be important. Because we need to respect our relationships. We need to respect what's happening in our lives and who it's happening with. That's not the same thing as saying that we need to be attached. Because that's usually what we think of in terms of relationships. If you have a relationship with a particular special person, you might feel a lot of attachment. But we're not talking about that. And we're not talking about relationships in the sense of like an enemy, because some people have enemies, and that's definitely a kind of relationship, sometimes more passionate than even the romantic ones. But we're not talking about that either. And of course, we're not talking about anything that would be diluted. We're talking about seeing things as they are. Relationship is just another way of talking about interdependence, interconnectedness. It's another way of seeing the path and seeing the things that the Buddha taught. So I, I think that I might have found th this word useful in particular within my own path because when I was younger, I was involved with a lot of other religions besides Buddhism. And, and I haven't spoken uh, at length about this before, but I have mentioned it, that I had been involved in various uh, pagan and, and neo-pagan spiritualities, you know, uh, Wicca, Druidism, even Hellenic polytheism for a couple of years, alongside all the meditation I was doing. And if you don't know anything about pagan religions, it's that they do view everything as sacred, but not in the same way, say, some monotheistic religions or, or you know, Abrahamic religions might view the sacred. And... It's not to say that one's better or worse. I'm not making that kind of comparison, but it is absolutely different in which the Christian context, at least the way I've understood it when, when I uh, was Catholic, is that things are sacred not in virtue of themselves, but they're sacred in virtue of who created them, right? God created the, uh, you know, the humanity, God created the world, and any sacredness they have, it's imparted by this creator deity. But in paganism, things are sacred just by virtue of their existence, just that they exist. And sacred not on an objective level, but on a subjective level. Things are sacred because of the way they live with us. So the elements become sacred because water is life-giving. The earth is life-giving, right? The sky is life-giving. All of these things allow us to live. And in my study of traditional Buddhism, specifically Theravada Buddhism, I don't find that to be very different. We do talk about the, the negative aspects of life because it's important to recognize that. It's not all rainbows, it's not all sunshine. There are some storm clouds and they will, they will arrive. So we're not looking at things only in one way, we're trying to see the full picture. Things in this world can cause us great distress, 
but they can also be the vehicles through which we become liberated. These, sen these sense bases that we have, the way we interact with the world, which is why the path is so much more than just sitting down and meditating. Meditation, I believe, is very useful. It is absolutely essential, necessary, but in respect to the entire entirety of the path in which we are looking at our, our thoughts, our conduct, our speech. We look at all of these interactions, all of these relationships. And we can see things as sacred in the sense that they deserve our respect. Buddhism is actually very life-affirming, which doesn't seem to mesh well with some people's views that Buddhism is simply trying to find an escape out of this reality. We are looking for transcendence. We are looking for liberation. But none of that means that we can't acknowledge this world as being, in some ways, beneficial to us. In the Buddhist context, there are many different heaven realms and, and hell realms, you know, the animal and hungry ghosts and all of these things. And the view within that traditional context is that this world has just the right balance of good and bad to help us awaken, to help us become liberated. And some of you might not uh, take much stock in the idea of heaven realms and hell realms, and that's not really the point. You, you can look at this world on its own and say, there's enough good and bad here that I can acknowledge, that I can respect, and find useful in building a healthier relationship with my mind, with my friends and family, with the world itself, with nature itself, to live in a balanced, skillful way, to live in a life-affirming, loving, generous, compassionate way. So I think that's why reverence is a good word to, for us to use in approaching Buddhist wisdom. So we need to, uh, I think, treat all that arises in our lives as important, worthy of our attention, so that we can seek to understand what arises and grow in our wisdom. I'm often uh, reminded these days of, of a book that I read in my teen years called Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And uh, I don't know if any of you have read it. It is a, a kind of old book now. I think maybe it was published maybe early 80s, something like that. But I, I read it um, several years after that because uh, I'm actually pretty young. But the book itself uh, borrows, borrows from many different spiritualities, but there is a lot of Buddhist wisdom to be found in there. And one of the quotes that I've always carried with me since I read it when I was maybe 14 is that there are no ordinary moments. Now, I don't know if the author of the book created that phrase himself, and I don't know if there's someone else who said it before, but it's, it strikes me as true. There are no ordinary moments. That even if we acknowledge rebirth, even if we acknowledge that, that life seems to perpetuate and continue, this particular 
ordering of things, these particular causes and conditions, won't arise again. This moment is unique. It is something special. We could use the word sacred. We don't need to. But we can respect it. This moment in particular is something unique. Something that we should be paying attention to. Something that we should be fully living in with all of our senses, including our minds, to live mindfully in this moment. We need to, uh, I think, appreciate reality as it is. To, and appreciate means to fully see and know the value of something. So we need to appreciate reality and hold it in reverence, hold it in respect. The movie I saw yesterday when I was uh, grabbing fistfuls of popcorn uh, was Ready Player One. And I won't spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it, but there's a character in the movie who says that reality is the only place that's real, right? And so that's something maybe to carry with us. Helps us have respect for those times in life that maybe don't hold our attention so easily. Maybe we can bring awareness to those moments and hold them with reverence. Anyway, I think that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Mr. Baudet.